beds available to 2,500. And you have been listening to the news on RTHK. From one. This is Peter Lewis. Join me every weekday morning after the 8 o'clock news for Money Talk with the latest business, finance and economic news from around the world to get you prepared for the business day. With Hong Kong's most experienced analysts, fund managers and economists, we bring you the latest news and best analysis as it happens. That's Money Talk, Monday to Friday, here on Radio 3. With music, news and information, this is Radio 3. Good morning and welcome to another Saturday, which means it's time for The Week on 3. I'm Christy Lai. Hope you're having a beautiful start to the weekend. If you're still coming up with the weekend plans, I might have just a thing for you. The annual Hong Kong Book Fair opened its doors on Wednesday and is taking place right now at the Wan Chai Convention and Exhibition Center. And it is one of my favorite events for the summer. What's better than looking at books and staying indoors with air conditioning? This year's theme is history and city literature, and readers will be able to travel through time and space, savoring countless Hong Kong stories and learning to cherish the present and to look at the future. Up next, Radio 3 intern Kyle Tse spoke to one of the writers, Miu Debenham, about her work and her involvement with this year's Hong Kong Book Fair. I think I've been a writer since I was a, a little kid, actually. Um, <laughs> but I only started getting published when um, I was an adult. And I joined the Hong Kong Writers Circle and I got my first short story published there. And I sort of went from there. I never really thought of it as a career before that. So at what point did you realize that you wanted to focus on children's writing, of all things? Um, well, <laughs> I, um, I started off, as I said, uh, writing for, for adults. Um, and I was writing short stories and getting published in various literary journals, which was exciting. But uh, my writing for adults was always a bit dark, you know, exploring the underbelly of the human psyche kind of thing. Um, but when I first gave first when I gave birth to my first child, I tried my hand at writing children's literature and it made me remember the magic of falling into a story and the excitement of discovering really interesting facts uh, in a non-fiction book. Um, so that's really when I started uh, writing seriously for, for children. I still wasn't doing it as a career then. I was still in the financial market. But um, when, my, when I became pregnant with my second uh, child, my son, I decided to retrain as an editor. Um, and I was writing on the side as, as well as um, working as an editor. And that's really when my career, if you like, uh, took off as a writer. Then where do you draw inspiration for a lot of your writings and works these days? 
Well, I draw, I draw inspiration from everywhere, actually, from newspapers, from things I hear, things I see, um, and I often find inspiration in my own life. For example, um, my kids were always fascinated with things that, you know, make them go, ugh, and shudder. And my son was particularly interested in facts about bugs and poo, um, which was why when, when I was um, asked to pitch an idea for a nonfiction book, I pitched um, the, the book called Yuck, Disgusting Things That Are Surprisingly Useful, which was published by Collins UK earlier this year. Um, and I, I also draw inspiration from real life of my fiction, too. So my, in next January, Collins will publish a book called My Name is Mia, which is the most personal book I've written to date because it draws on my Japanese culture, my childhood experiences, and touches on issues like um, Alzheimer's, which has sadly touched my life as it has so many others. Wow, that sounds really interesting, but also quite heavy for a children's book how do you sort of package that and uh sort of deliver it to these children you know i try not to make it too heavy um because I'm, I'm very conscious about uh children's books needing to have hope um and it, it's there's actually quite a few funny bits as well and this book is a little bit different because it's, it's got a lot of text but it's also got some graphic novel elements. So it's told partly through Mia's diaries, which she draws as like a, in graphic novel style. So it, it's got a lot of light bits as well. And it just sort of, you know, I think a, a lot of readers will recognize the situations that she goes through th with her friendship group and with things happening at home. But hopefully it won't be too depressing and it will leave them with a feeling of hope when they finish. Do you have any advice for aspiring writers? Um, yes, I do. My biggest piece of advice is before you do anything, do lots of reading. I see so many writers, both kids and adults, um, and it's not to say you can't write something brilliant if, you ha if you're not well read, but a lot of people, especially if they're writing for children, a lot of adults, if they're writing for children, they come and they write really heavy didactic texts because mainly because they haven't read anything uh, written for children since they were a child themselves and they've forgotten what you know interests children uh, what catches their attention so expose I, I advise people to expose themselves to all sorts of books all sorts of themes styles topics because reading books which have been well written teaches you uh, so much about story structure plot character development, as well as the rhythms and cadence of language and voice, then um, when you do start to write, write what interests you because your passion will show in your writing. And especially if you're writing for children's books, don't write to teach them something. <laughs> if that is the primary concern, it's not going to be a good book, I think. Um, I think um, children are very clever. They, they can get inferences from seeing what the characters experience. So you don't need to sort of say, you know, you don't have to be too didactic um, in what you write. And um, my last piece of advice is don't expect to write something perfect the very first time um, because writing requires a lot of thought, hard work and editing and a lot of time with your bum in seat. Um, but don't give up because whilst it might take a, 
a while to write something really good. It's fun to practice, and it's so exciting when you succeed and you, you manage to write something that really captures the attention of your readers. Author Mio Debenham was speaking to Radio 3 intern Kyle Zhe. This year's book fair will be running until Tuesday, 26th of July, at the Wan Chai Convention and Exhibition Center. If you would like to know more, check out their site at hkbookfair.tdc.com. Opera is such an elegant yet graceful acquired art form that many find confusing. But what if there are some special elements to it? Up next, we will be finding more about opera solaria, that is, aerial opera. Yes, opera while dangling in midair. Hong Kong-born soprano Etta Fung joined Phil Whelan on The Morning Brew to talk about her creation, which involves singing while performing acrobatics. Etta is very talented in her field, and her main mission is to try to bring classical music to people in all sorts of different ways. Right, so... Uh... I, I came up with this name because, um, well, who doesn't love the marriage of Figaro, yeah, right? And the most famous duet, Solaria, um, it, it was about uh, the countess writing this, this letter and Susanna helping her with this, you know, trick that they're going to play on, on their men. Mm -hmm. So um, it had nothing to do with singing in the air, but since Solaria means, Whatever. you know, on the air. <laughs> so I just I just thought, you know, it's pretty music, it has to do with opera, it has air, you know, and this works. So when I came up with this um aerial operatic singing act, I just decided to name my sort of all my acts uh opera solaris under this so called company or whatever you, you whatever it is yeah. but uh yeah so i just um well I, I started to do it because i wanted to have people come to my recital when i first returned to hong kong yeah. and they were like yeah i'm not really interested i'm busy and then i thought okay i've got to have a gimmick and i said well what if i sang upside down like seven meters high in the air they were like oh okay i'm in this is fantastic though because you you are talking about <laughs> the the eternal problem of getting people to go and see opera and most times they'll say yes. hey that was really good after you force them to yes. go right yes uh so i went to extreme measures and uh i decided to do that and it was really funny because a lot of people don't know this i i orchestrated the whole thing myself and i sold tickets you know i booked the venue well i i booked the venue through the help of another group yeah and i started to sell tickets but i actually wasn't able to sing in the air yet <laughs> so um, so i started practicing and it didn't work what were the fundamental problems to start with <laughs> to start with i mean apart from the obvious <laughs> so I was terrified and then I kind of <laughs> hurt my I hurt my shoulder in the process. Yeah. And I thought, "Oh my gosh, I don't even have money to refund the tickets." I just I didn't know what to I've only taken up aerial sucks for about uh like 4 months uh, or less than half a year and I thought, "What an insane idea. Like who does this? Too who late. does this?" <laughs> so, yeah, too late. So, uh the the end the end result is that I did it, but you know it was <laughs> it was difficult. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, look. I mean, let's just talk about seriously what the technical difficulties were. I mean, forget about it. You're in the air. It's a combination. You said you wanted to do to bring classical music to people in a cool way. Well, this is it. But 
what did you have to do? Which muscles did you necessarily maybe have to work on more? What did you really have to do to make this function? You know, it's funny. I really have to relax. I know that most people don't expect this answer, but you know, for me, a lot of things in music and acrobatics is about finding space. Um, you need to find space in order to do more. So instead of I, I started the wrong way. I clenched my muscles. I, I, I squeezed. I well, worked yeah. too hard. I mean, that is understandable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but. Uh, I realized that what I had to do was I needed to complete the area with as little effort as oh, I needed to. Okay. And then I needed to find, you know, transitional spaces or like poses in between where I can sing and then coordinate the aerial act with the music. And that was the key to it. Okay. So you had to sit yeah. down and really organize your processes as first, right? Uh, I didn't, yes, but I, I didn't really sit down. <laughs> no, I mean, I metaphorically. Kinda, yeah, you can't sit down yeah. when you're, you know what I mean, metaphorically sit down. Yeah, sure. I I just kind of tried a lot of different things and it didn't work a lot. Okay. You know, most of the time it didn't work and it was scary, but I just kept trying and then eventually it just kind of happened. Well, I mean, there were loads of videos um, and we can put some links up on our Morning Brew Facebook page. There's, you are very good at putting yourself out there, which I think these days you got to be, haven't you? Yeah, that's really true. I hate it, but it's really true. <laughs> no, you, have to. you have to. I mean, is, is combining opera with aerial silks and perhaps other, other fun things, is this a thing mm -hmm. or is this something that you just thought up like, I'd like to do this? You know, it started out as a gimmick and uh, it was just a wow factor to get people to come. I didn't think much about it. Yeah. And then as I carried on, I realized that it was something that sort of was just very inspirational for me because it, it pushed me out of my comfort zone. It made me um, a lot more, how should I say, just <laughs> a lot more reckless and just yeah. kind of finding new things to do in every way, not even just in the air, but also on the ground. So it became uh, kind of a new art form that yeah. I started to pursue. So I, I incorporated a lot of new themes and new songs and uh, we, we were actually even cooking up a new opera. Does it feel fundamentally different when you're upside down to, to produce the tones? Yeah. Can you explain it yeah, possibly? The, <laughs> yeah, the lower notes get a lot more difficult because your support is just completely, you know, inverted. I mean, I usually try to cheat and sing my lower notes when I'm the right side up. Well, you got and to smoke I'm... and mirrors, right? <laughs> Yeah. And then when I sing the high notes, I try to go upside down because it's actually a lot easier. And a lot of people don't know that. And they're like, wow, that looks amazing. I'm like, no, I'm just helping myself. Opera singer Etta Fung on The Morning Brew. The world's oldest male giant panda, An An, died at the ocean park this Thursday. An An was 35 years old which is the equivalent of 105 years for humans. An An was a beloved member of the park, and many visitors enjoyed visiting him. Sharing with us her memories and first meeting with An An is Suzanne Gendron, the former director of the Ocean Park Conservation Foundation Hong Kong. Oh my gosh, yes, I remember very vividly. We went up to Wulong. It was my first month in Hong Kong and my first month with Ocean Park, and we went up to 
to Wulong uh, to to meet Anan and Jaja before before they even came back to, and that would be in November 1998, before they uh, came to Hong Kong in uh, April of uh, 1999, while we were finishing up the exhibit and, and officially they could come in. And I remember he uh, he was a very, uh, how should I put him, I don't want to give him human emotions, but if, if I were to describe it as a human, I would say he was aloof. He was not, uh, didn't interact with people very much, and so uh, he was he was taken good, well, he was well taken care of, but he didn't interact with people very much. Um, and he was a beautiful animal. He had been to a number of other places, Singapore, he was an ambassador animal. Uh, and then when we, uh, he came to us, working with him, um, we were able to use positive reinforcement to teach him various behaviors to help us take better care of him. And which is why he's had such a good long life, too, is that he learned to hold out his paw. And this was the first time giant pandas ever were taught any of these medical behaviors. So being able to check on his health and make sure he was always healthy, we could have him hand out his, his paw and take a blood to make sure he was healthy. We could take blood pressure. We learned so we could take and look at his teeth. We could check his body fat. We could do 99% of everything we needed on his annual physical just through these behaviors. And he always was then rewarded after doing any of these with um, affection or uh, whatever his favorite uh, food was at the time. I remember Lula specifically likes lavender towels. I don't think he was as keen on lavender towels. but So he, he was able, through being with Ocean Park, for as many years as he has been now, he was one of the very first pandas, he and Jaja, to show the rest of the world that pandas are bright animals that could learn and be um, partners in their health exams like that. So that was one of the first lessons he taught us. And the veterinarians learned so much about animal health that all veterinarians treating animals that come in from the wild have more information. Not that Ocean Park was the only one that did that, but working together with other zoos and aquariums that had uh, pandas under human care and the Wulong Nature Reserve where the pandas were under human care. You know, we built up a wide, large body of knowledge on um, care of animals and for geriatric pandas, Ocean Park led the way on, on geriatric panda medicine. The second thing that was so, that has been so marvelous, as I mentioned earlier, is that millions of people have come through the, the giant panda habitat where Anon lives. And yeah. seeing him and um, just the, the emotional connections by looking at him in the eye and watching his behaviors and appreciating what an amazing animal Anon and other giant pandas are, they're much more aware of nature, that connection to nature, and are more likely to have pro-environmental behaviors of being able to do things 
that help other animals in the wild. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. So, so, what, what is what is it that captivates us about pandas so much? And that, that we have um, we all love them. There's what three and a half thousand likes on Ocean Park's post about our nun. And what, what, what is it just that they they're so incredibly cute? Why, why is it that we 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 spend fifteen minutes on a radio program talking about a panda? Well, I think one of the reasons we all like pandas is they they are always looking vulnerable because they're eye patched, they have big eyes, and that appeals to us, just like babies appeal to us. And they have such an amazing repertoire of behaviors that they, you know, act out during their, their daily, you know, looking for food and playing that they just appeal to us. And, and, that is an absolutely wonderful thing for children and adults to have that connection to nature. As I, as I learn more on the importance of connections to nature and how that helps inspire and inculcate our stewardship for nature, it's really important that our children today who are on technology so much have an opportunity to have those personal connections with animals to have those develop those uh, strong connections with nature and so that they too will take up the baton to be stewards of nature when they grow up. So I think pandas are just an amazing animal. Since when I first started at Ocean Park in 1998, there were 23 reserves. There are now 67, more than 67 reserves. And as the, and there were about a thousand, maybe eleven hundred pandas under in the wild, and only a few under human care. And now there's well over eighteen hundred and sixty-four in the two thousand and fifteen census in the wild. So that they've actually gone from critically endangered on the um, International Union of Conservation for Nature's red list down to vulnerable. They're still vulnerable for habitat loss and fragmentation, but, you know, they're not exploited for their fur. They're not hunted. They don't have any major uh, predators. So really it's just being able to get enough food and be able to get from one habitat to the other so that they can mate since they're normally loners. And then during the mating season they need to, to be able to travel distances up to 25 miles to to find a mate. All right, so Miss Gendron has made uh, corridors so that between their reserves, so that the pandas can do that. Suzanne Gendron, the former director of the Ocean Park Conservation Foundation, Hong Kong. May An An rest in peace. To end today's week on three. Steve James will be taking us back in time to the day when the British girl group, the Spice Girls, made their debut in 1996. Take care and have a great day. I'll catch you next week here on The Week on 3. I'm Christy Lai. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world. You have got to be kidding me. She walks into mine. The Steve James Tuesday Afternoon Drive. Yeah, life is hilariously cruel. Oh, the factories may be roaring 
with the boom a lack a zoom a lack a wee. But there isn't any roar when the clock strikes four. Everything stops for tea. Oh, they may be playing football, playing football. and the crowd is yelling, kill, kill, the the referee. Referee. kill the referee. But no matter what the score, when the clock strikes four, oh. everything stops for tea. Tea break this afternoon, this day 1996. The Spice Girls made their debut on Top of the Pops and went to number one. Yeah. <laughs> 
Tuesday afternoon tea break this week, celebrating this day 1996. The Spice Girls made their debut to a UK TV music show, Top of the Pops. They performed Wannabe, which gave them their first of nine UK chart toppers. And there goes Stop. Spicing up your tea break this afternoon.